0: to the masses wants to pass some acts for middle classes missing bits of work to raise and nurse a kid should be okay whoever it is you love the gut will treat us all the same way wants to make college tuition affordable socialist latency more than explorable passionate grants was also adorable Bernie's of course is no longer ignorable he's super packing he's the real deal how does the, how does the revolution feel how does the
1: revolution feel
2: and that was talk Bernie to me by Sasha Inez and Molly Dworsky, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Boobs for Bernie 2016. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. If you want to find out more or find some more episodes of this podcast, you can find them on iTunes where you can uh, rate this podcast as well. You can also find the episodes posted on my website, Bernie-2016.com. And uh, as I mentioned, the YouTube or one of the YouTube uh, hosts or, or sites that has that song, Talk Bernie to Me, is called Boobs for Bernie 2016. This is a recent hashtag, and it came up for much better reasons than you might imagine. At a recent event, a recent rally that Bernie had uh, i can't remember exactly where it was at, but a young mother was photographed at that rally, uh standing and cheering for Bernie while she was nursing her daughter and a one of the um, major press organizations i 'm not sure which one their photographer took a photo of her and it got some fairly wide release. Bernie and many others praised her for doing what moms do in feeding her child, regardless of where she was at and what else she was engaged in at the time. And she has gotten a whole lot of support um, after that photo was released and became public. She's also got scorn and ridicule and hate mail because this is the internet in 2016 and social media in as much as it is these days, um, is as is, is well as a place where people can connect and fight to do what's right. It is a place where people can fairly anonymously um make threats and rude and ignorant comments about each other. So uh boobs for Bernie became a hashtag and got uh, pretty decent coverage um, based on that photograph in from that rally of Bernie Sanders. So uh, when I recorded the last episode, it was the eve of Super Tuesday, and a lot has happened in a week. Uh, Not only have we had Super Tuesday, but we had uh, Super Saturday, and we had, uh, I don't think it was very particularly super because there were only um, one major event on the Democratic side, but we also had the main caucuses uh, this past Sunday. So uh, a lot of results out there, so I'm going to run through some of those results By and large, Super Tuesday was not particularly super for Bernie. It was fair. It had an opportunity to be a strong event for Bernie, um, but was not as strong as it could have been. So Bernie did have some success on Super Tuesday, But uh, it was eclipsed by the success that Clinton saw. And Super Tuesday historically has um, favored the South and the Southern states. And Clinton definitely is a much stronger candidate in the Southern states. Um, If we take a look overall, the delegate count. And when I count delegates, I don't count unpledged delegates. I count only the pledged delegates. There are a very large number of unpledged delegates on the Democratic side, somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 or so. And these are party leaders that can vote any way they so choose. And while a large portion of those have pledged their support to Hillary Clinton, Um, That is not anything that's locked in. While they may, in in fact, end up voting that way, it is possible that they could change their vote by the time the convention comes around in July. So the delegate count from Super Tuesday in pledged delegates, Hillary won 517, Bernie won 345. So she didn't quite... uh, Get two hundred more about looks like about one hundred and eighty or so more than Sanders won, um, but that sets up a pretty strong deficit deficit a pretty strong deficit for Sanders to try to work his way out of in future races so if we take a look at the states that voted on Super Tuesday, we had the Alabama primary and Clinton dominated in Alabama, 77% of the vote to Bernie Sanders, 19%. We had a vote in American Samoa, Uh, no percentages for that vote, but Clinton won four delegates there and Sanders won two. In Arkansas, Clinton dominated in Arkansas, not a surprise considering that she was once the first lady of Arkansas And uh, not as strong of a win as she saw in Alabama, but she did win 66% to Bernie's 29% of the votes there. Um, Colorado was a different story. Colorado went for Sanders uh, 59% to 40%. Colorado had a caucus, and the Huffington Post actually doesn't even have 100% of the results in for Colorado yet they do have 99% in with about 40 uh, precincts that haven't reported yet or that the reports weren't calculated on Huffington Post. In Georgia, Georgia was another southern state where Clinton really dominated. Clinton got 71% of the vote to Sanders, 28%. And Minnesota... Again, went to Sanders, uh, one of the states that Sanders won. So Sanders won four states overall. So far, we've seen Colorado and Minnesota. Minnesota went 61% to Sanders, 38% to Clinton. And Sanders also won in Oklahoma. For me, this was the surprise state. And I have a story coming up that uh, talks a little bit about what is going on in Oklahoma. But Sanders won uh, just about 52% of the vote. To Clinton's 42% of the vote. Tennessee went along the lines of those southern states with 66% to Clinton and 32% to Sanders. And Texas as well. Texas was a big state. Or it is a big state. It has a whole lot of delegates. Uh, 222 pledged delegates came from Texas. And Clinton dominated in Texas 65% to 33% for Sanders. This is where Clinton made the most uh or or built the biggest lead in delegates on Super Tuesday against Sanders. She won 147 delegates in Texas to Sanders 74. And Sanders dominated in the state of Vermont, um his home state, and this was the one and only place where the competition was entirely one-sided. Sanders got 86% of the votes in Vermont. Clinton won 13.6% of the votes in Vermont. In the Democratic primary, the delegates are uh, proportionally divided based on your percentage of the vote in a particular state or even in a particular county, depending on the way that the state tally thinks. But in order to win any delegates at all, you must get 15% of the vote. That is the threshold for viability to um, start to accumulate delegates. And Clinton won only 13.6% of the votes in Vermont. So she was shut out completely in Vermont. The downside is that Vermont is probably the smallest state on Super Tuesday that had a vote. They had 16 delegates up for grabs, and Bernie Sanders did win all 16. So I skipped one state. Those were all the states where we really saw, for the most part, some pretty lopsided results. I think Oklahoma was the closest with only uh, about a 10-point 10, 10 margin. Um, but all of the other states on Super Tuesday really had pretty big margins, like 30% or better for the most part. In the margins there. Massachusetts was an outlier as far as that goes. Massachusetts was a nail-biter. It was along the lines of Iowa, but not quite as close as Iowa. In Massachusetts, Hillary Clinton did pull out the win. She got 50.1% of the votes. And Bernie Sanders got 48.7%. Of those votes, so only a one point four percent margin in Massachusetts um, that it fell to Clinton is psychologically very important it, it It was a state where Bernie had high expectations. It was a state that would have made a a very strong psychological difference in my opinion, if Bernie had actually won by one percent instead of losing by one percent. As far as the delegates go, it would have made almost no difference at all. Uh, Hillary Clinton comes out of Massachusetts with forty six delegates, whereas Sanders comes out of Massachusetts with forty five so an extremely tight race in Massachusetts. Clinton won pretty pretty heavily in all of the um, suburbs of Boston uh, from the North Shore down to the south. And Sanders really dominated in most of the rest of the state. There were a few towns or counties way out west that uh, Hillary picked up. Those closest to the New York state border, she won a number of those towns as well, plus a few out on Cape Cod. Um, But uh, really interesting results in Massachusetts. Again, one that would have made a huge difference. To Bernie by two percentage points, Uh, a a very narrow win in Massachusetts would have shown even stronger that Sanders is very competitive in this race. Um, So when you take a look at Super Tuesday as a whole, we find that Hillary of the 11 states that voted, Hillary won seven of those states. And Bernie won four of those states, so a four seven split clearly uh not strong in sanders' favor a uh pretty challenging result, not a devastating result, but a weak result for Sanders on Super Tuesday again, if that had just if that one state of Massachusetts had just flipped into Bernie's column having a 5 to 6 split of 11 states would in my mind, you know, very strongly send a message that Sanders is a really strong competitor even without changing the delegate count very much or or hardly at all. So Sanders did come out of Super Tuesday running behind, needs to catch up. And uh, we'll see in a minute how he has fared since Super Tuesday. But uh, first, we'll take a look at a couple of stories regarding the Super Tuesday states. This first story is from Vox.com by Jeff Stein. Winning Oklahoma is not going to get Bernie Sanders a Democratic nomination. But Sanders surprised many observers in taking the Southern state by a 10-point margin on Tuesday night, suggesting for the first time that the Vermont Senators' coalition could extend beyond the Northeast. The results are particularly counterintuitive when you consider that Sanders was also defeated in Massachusetts, which is much more reliably liberal. But how did a candidate with the most left-wing policy positions win one of the most conservative states in the country, while also losing One of the most liberal. As Slate's Josh Voorhees points out, part of the story here is race. Oklahoma's Democratic primary electorate was 75% white, much higher than the other southern states that Clinton won by huge margins, where black and Latino voters often made up more than half of the total. Quote, it's more of a western state than a southern one, in that blacks are only about 7% of eligible voters, and Hispanics are about 5%, says Matthew Dickinson, a political science professor at Middlebury College. But race can't account for the full story here, either. Oklahoma is whiter than many of the states Sanders lost on Tuesday, but it's not as white as Massachusetts, where Caucasians formed 86% of the electorate, and Sanders lost anyway, according to exit polls. In fact, it's arguably the economic class of those white voters that made a bigger difference. In Oklahoma, Sanders won 54% of the vote among families earning less than $50,000. He did just as well with the lower-income brackets in Massachusetts. If low-income voters had been as big a share of the electorate in Massachusetts as they were in Oklahoma, Sanders could have won Massachusetts. The difference is that affluent people made up a much bigger part of the Democratic electorate in Massachusetts than they did in Oklahoma. About half the electorate in Oklahoma reported earnings less than $50,000. That same lower-income group formed only about 30% of the electorate in Massachusetts. This suggests more evidence that Sanders has built broad support with low-income white voters, even outside of liberal states like Iowa, in New Hampshire. So far, that effort has not proven successful with low income non white voters. Dickinson, the Middlebury professor, listed a few other reasons for Sanders' success in Oklahoma, including the fact that Sanders made several trips to the state and heavily targeted it in his campaign. Oklahoma also has a quote closed primary meaning voters had to be registered with the party which normally means the electorate has more voters with strong partisan affiliations according to dickinson that could have helped sanders dickinson said and to that point i i have some dispute to that point sanders is enormously uh well supported and and really holds a much stronger position among independents. And in a primary or a caucus where there's a lot of flexibility, and an independent or even someone from the other party could come in and vote in the Democratic primary or Democratic caucus. In those cases, like in New Hampshire, where an independent can choose a Democratic ballot, um, in those cases, Sanders has... A a boost from those voters who decide to basically either cross the line or choose a party and support uh, the Democrat support Sanders in states where the system is more closed and you must be a registered Democrat in order to vote in the primary. I think Sanders has a definite disadvantage. Sanders is new to the Democratic Party. He's not new to politics. He's been in Congress for 25 or more years, but he uh, has been in Congress as an independent. And there are still a good chunk of those Democrats out there that don't see Sanders as a Democrat. So in a state where the primary or caucus is kind of locked down and someone can't either register on the day of voting or change party affiliation if they haven't done it weeks or even months ahead of time. The New York state was ridiculous. You had to uh, change your party affiliation last fall if you wanted to switch from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican, and their uh, primary has not come up yet. So that registration or change in your party registration for New York was super early. And I— and Personally, I think that's intentional to disenfranchise voters who don't pay attention to politics, don't pay attention to the candidates until later on in the season. Seriously, if a lot of uh, New York voters who were not registered as Democrats, but who were registered as independents or as Republicans, started to pay attention to politics as of like the... Iowa primary or sorry, the Iowa caucus. They have no opportunity in New York to go and change their party affiliation. If they see someone they like on the other side, I I think that's extremely disenfranchising to a large segment of the population. And I believe that those people would predominantly support Bernie Sanders. So I do take issue with that point in this particular article. Uh, And going on, quote, finally, there is some concern there for the impact of fracking on the environment, particularly the link with earthquakes. And Sanders has come out strongly against fracking, Dickinson said in an email that might appeal to those likely to vote in the Democratic race. I think that factor did probably have a strong um, a strong sway or strong uh, pull for a number of voters in Oklahoma. Fracking in Oklahoma has been really widespread, and has been directly linked to a major increase in the amount of earthquakes that strike Oklahoma. Additionally, Randle- Randy Krebel, or Krabiel, a reporter covering the campaign for the Tulsa World, said in an interview that the Democratic Party in Oklahoma has gotten increasingly liberal. As it has shrunk over the past several years, turnout was down in twenty sixteen from two thousand eight. He said, and the Oklahoma Democrats who are left tend to no longer include the moderates and conservative New Dealers. Um, and in one way that's counterintuitive. I I take the point that it is very possible that a lot of moderate and conservative Democrats you know, left the Democratic Party for the Republican Party in Oklahoma. And that certainly would leave behind a larger portion of the electorate who is liberal and more left-leaning. But when turnout is down from 2008, uh, from the votes for voting in 2008 when Obama first ran for, for president, Bernie Sanders generally does not do as well. Sanders does extremely well when the turnout is way up, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons he was successful in Minnesota and one of the reasons he was successful in Colorado. The turnout in those caucuses was very, very strong, and as we'll see, there was more strong turnout in some other recent races. But before we take a look at those other races that happened on Saturday and Sunday, um, let's take a look at the the whole delegate question. As I mentioned when I talk about uh, delegates that have been won, I am talking about the pledged delegates that are won based on the voting in the states, not about the uh, super delegates or the unpledged delegates. That are the party leaders that are going to vote however they decide to vote. But this piece is from RT.com. And no author on this one. Winning a Super Tuesday state by 19 points seems like it would matter. But Senator Bernie Sanders' victory in Colorado didn't earn him more delegates than Hillary Clinton. In fact, she may end up with an even greater amount, despite a big loss at the polls. Of the 78 delegates up for grabs in Colorado, Sanders won 38, and so did Clinton. How can that be? It's not that 59 to 40 percent is counted as a tie in the centennial state, but rather it has something to do with something called a superdelegate. Only 66 of the 78 state delegates in Colorado are actually Delegates in the most specific sense. The other 12 are superdelegates, elected Democratic Party officials who are not bound by a state's poll or election results. So after the 66 was divvied up, proportionally according to the state party's caucus rules, 38 to Sanders and 28 to Clinton, the superdelegates were free to choose which candidate to support. 10 of Colorado's superdelegates chose Clinton while two remain uncommitted, hence the 38-38 to current share of the state's delegates between the two presidential candidates. That is bad news for the Sanders supporters in Colorado who helped the Democratic Socialists win in nearly 80% of the state's 64 counties and turn out more Democratic voters than even those who voted in the 2008 primary that featured the rising political rock star of the day, then-Senator Barack Obama. So, this is a common theme in a lot of the reporting. A lot of the sites out there, a lot of the uh, corporate media is only publishing uh, delegate totals that include the superdelegates who have made commitments to support one candidate or the other. And as I said earlier, those superdelegates have made uh, many more commitments to vote for hillary clinton then for bernie sanders i believe there's over 400 that have pledged their support to hillary clinton at this point but that is only pledged support like i also said earlier those delegates can change their mind so until those delegates actually cast their vote which won't happen until july at the convention I personally don't believe they should be counted in the totals. I think it's important to know and understand that, that they exist and they will vote and they may well vote the way they currently um, have pledged that they will vote. But there is also an opportunity or a chance that many or most of those could change their mind and vote a different way. The I think the narrative of... Bernie wins Colorado by 19 points, but ties in delegates. I think that's a very strong narrative for the Hillary Clinton campaign and for the corporate media and for the uh, establishment um, politicians and the establishment media to dissuade support for Bernie Sanders. If you're going to get out and vote and work hard and spend a lot of time and these caucuses some of these caucuses that are getting these huge turnouts are taking hours and hours you know four or five hours of people's time um is spent you know waiting in line to get into the caucus or waiting in the caucus for the process to occur for people to be counted for speeches for people to change sides if so desired for further counts, for election of delegates, it's a long process. And it it's also a process that, while it has its benefits, it also can be disenfranchising to people who can't afford to spend that amount of time in support of a candidate. So uh, when you hear delegate totals, when you're, you know watching and paying attention to the results out there. Make sure you understand what they're talking about. Make sure you know if they're talking about pledged delegates, which are the ones that are actually assigned to the candidates based on the vote, or whether you're talking about super delegates. And when it does come right down to it, the pledged delegates um, also will be able to cast a vote at the convention in July. And I believe for the most part, in most states if not all, there is nothing that binds those delegates to vote for the candidate that won them, that won their support. However, those delegates are pretty much representatives of that candidate. Those delegates normally also get elected as a slate of delegates that are Running in support of that particular candidate. So I don't think there's a whole lot of shifting among the regular delegates unless their candidate drops out of the race and um, may or may not support directly another candidate. Those delegates certainly have the opportunity to vote whichever way they choose. So anyway, on to the other states that, that uh, voted since Super Tuesday. So like I said, there were four states since Super Tuesday that have cast votes. Three cast their votes on Saturday, and those three were Kansas, Nebraska, and Louisiana. And if we start in Louisiana, where Bernie had his worst showing of the day, uh, again, Louisiana, a, a southern state down in the deep south, Um, very high percentage of minority population in that electorate. And that's somewhere that Bernie Sanders still has enormous opportunity to try to break through and connect more strongly with those voters. Um, I think that there's still a, a huge lag in support there, um, and the Sanders campaign really needs to find better ways, find stronger ways to break through. Um, so in Louisiana, Clinton won Louisiana 71% to 23%. Um, Sanders did manage to win in two precincts. And with that 23% of the vote, Sanders won 14 delegates in Louisiana. But Clinton dominated with 37 Delegates from Louisiana. Now, in the other two states that voted on Saturday, Sanders had a much better showing. In fact, some of his best showing of the campaign. In Nebraska, Sanders won Nebraska 57% to 43%. He won 15 of those delegates. Clinton won 10 of the delegates in Nebraska. And then if you take a look at Kansas, Kansas is where Sanders really dominated on Saturday. Sanders won 67.7% of the vote to Clinton's 32.3%, and Sanders took 23 delegates to Clinton's 10. So two out of three states on Saturday voted for Sanders. But because of Hillary's big win in Louisiana, which had more delegates total to give out. Hillary did edge Sanders in the total delegate count on that day. Clinton won 57 delegates and Sanders won 52 delegates on Saturday. So two out of three states, which is a great showing, but did not fare well enough in the biggest state in Louisiana to win the delegate count overall. So while the delegate count didn't, the total or the total variance in delegates Delegates between Sanders and Clinton didn't change all that much um, on Saturday. Um, he was able to hold his own and grow his delegate totals. Now, one more state voted over the weekend, and that was Maine. So Maine had a caucus. The Maine caucus turnout was tremendous. It was... Uh, in many areas, far surpassing the numbers that came out in 2008. Maine is a smaller state overall, so not a enormous amount of delegates total in Maine, but there were 25 delegates in Maine, and Bernie Sanders, with 64% of the vote, won 15 of those delegates, and Clinton got 35% of the vote. She won seven of those delegates. There's still a couple of those delegates that are... To be determined the results from huffington post here have 91 percent of the precincts reporting so still about 53 precincts that uh, the huffington post does not have the results from which will help determine where those final delegates land so uh sanders making some delegate gains um i think that you know despite the fact that Sanders still trails significantly in delegates, you know, in the neighborhood of 180 delegates behind Clinton at this point. Um, he now won the last three, three out of the last four states that voted. And that brings the, the totals by state to 11 states that uh, Clinton was victorious in and eight states that Sanders was victorious in. And if you take a look At those states that were won, two of those states in Clinton's column, so two out of those 11, were won by less than 2% of the vote. So there was Iowa, which was only won by two-tenths of a percent of the vote, and there was Massachusetts that was won by 1.4% of the vote. So they definitely land in Clinton's column, but they could uh, be considered a toss up. They weren't decisive wins. And unfortunately for Bernie, they they neither one went his way. Uh really speaks to how important it is for every single one of us to get out there and vote. There is no room to uh stay at home. Um it's it's incredibly important that everybody that supports Sanders gets out there and casts a vote and convinces their friends and brings their friends and, you know, don't do it alone. Um, get out there and bring someone with you to vote in a town that is very near my hometown in Massachusetts, the town of Methuen, Massachusetts. Uh, there were, I think there were over 3000 votes cast for each candidate in Methuen And Bernie Sanders won Methuen, Massachusetts, by one vote. So it really speaks to how important every single vote is out there. And Bernie needs every vote, Uh, regardless of whether you live in a state where Hillary is expected to dominate or whether you live in a state where Bernie is expected to be successful. Every vote counts, even if, if Hillary Clinton wins by you know, 25% or if she wins by 15%, that can make a big difference to Bernie in the amount of delegates that he ends up collecting. And that can um, help him not fall behind any further. And on the other hand, if Bernie is favored in your state and expected to win in your state, the margin that he wins by is critical at this point. He needs to start winning. Well, maybe not start winning because his last three wins were pretty strong wins. He needs to continue winning really big. He needs to get 60-40 splits. He needs to get 70-30 splits to begin to make up ground versus Clinton in her current delegate lead. There are some big states coming up. Michigan's coming up tomorrow. Michigan is extremely important. Uh, Clinton in the polling is leading Michigan by 15 points right now. It is really critical that Bernie does not lose in Michigan. Um, and if he does lose in Michigan, that it's a very, very narrow loss so that Hillary doesn't start to pile up more delegates and start to get out of reach of Bernie Sanders. So hopefully everybody out there in Michigan can make it to the polls tomorrow and cast their vote for Bernie, and we can give Bernie a big win in Michigan. So on to some more stories here, and this from op-ednews.com, and this is by Bernie Sanders, and it's called Sanders' Response to Clinton's Speech on Jobs. So Clinton gave a speech fairly recently On jobs, and Sanders posted or published this response. The American people are sick and tired of establishment politicians who promise to create manufacturing jobs during campaign season, but support trade policies that make it easier to outsource these jobs the day after they get elected. If Secretary Clinton really supported manufacturing jobs, she would have joined me on the picket lines against the North American Free Trade Agreement. Instead, she said that, quote, NAFTA is proving its worth. If Secretary Clinton was sincere in protecting factories, she would have joined me in opposing permanent normal trade relations with China. Instead, she said that this disastrous trade deal was in the best interest of America and American workers. If Hillary Clinton really cared about jobs in Michigan, she would never have said that the Trans-Pacific Partnership was, quote, the gold standard of trade agreements when she was Secretary of State. If Secretary Clinton really thought offshoring was bad, she would not have said that outsourcing jobs to India has benefited many parts of our country. We We need to fundamentally rewrite NAFTA, Central America Free Trade Agreement, Permanent Normal Trade Relations with China, and the Korea Free Trade Agreement to lift up the living standards of workers in America. Trade is a good thing, but it has got to be fair. We need to abolish the Export-Import Bank that provides corporate welfare to the largest outsourcers in America and creates a U.S. Employee Ownership Bank to and create a U.S. employee ownership bank, to provide financial assistance to workers who want to start their own businesses. Workers who are owners will not ship their own jobs to China and other low-wage countries. We need to eliminate federal tax breaks, contracts, grants, and loans to corporations that throw workers out on the street and provide financial assistance to small businesses that are creating good jobs in America. We need to impose countervailing tariffs on imports from China and Japan until they stop manipulating their currencies. We need to make sure that strong and binding labor, environmental, and human rights standards are in the core text of all trade agreements. We need to repeal the 1996 welfare reform law that Marion Wright Edelman rightfully called quote, the biggest betrayal of children and the poor she has ever witnessed. How many jobs would we have been able to create, rebuilding America, if we did not spend trillions on the Iraq War, the biggest foreign policy blunder in the history of the United States? I voted against this war. Secretary Clinton voted for it. Yes, we need to rebuild Flint, starting but not ending with the water system. Flint was poisoned by lead in the drinking water and the negligence of local and state officials. But let's not forget that NAFTA and other free trade agreements turned a a prosperous middle-class city into a living nightmare for thousands of its residents. Yes, we need to rebuild the middle class, raise wages, create millions of jobs, and reduce childhood poverty. But electing establishment politicians who make promises to protect manufacturing jobs on the campaign trail, only to break them once they are sworn in, will not help rebuild Michigan, and it won't help rebuild America. It will only lead to the continued deindustrialization of cities and towns throughout America and the hollowing out of the middle class. We've got to do a lot better than that. And that was uh, op-ed story or article written by Bernie Sanders and a note on the, the free trade agreements, NAFTA, CAFTA, uh, permanent. What's the China one called? Uh, permanent normal trade relations with China. One of the most onerous parts of these free trade agreements is the ability of corporations to sue governments because of government laws and rules that in many cases are created to defend the environment, created to defend the local workers, created to uh, protect the consumers of products. Um, these trade agreements create legal processes and some uh like the world trade organization um that companies can go to and file lawsuits against the activities in one of the other host countries one of the ways this has impacted the united states very recently maybe not quite so recently but the the final impacts of it has have been felt pretty recently is in the labeling country of origin labeling on meat products that are sold in the United States. The United States had a labeling law that required any meat product sold in the United States to be labeled with its country of origin. And the foreign companies uh, sued the United States to uh, claiming that that was a barrier to free trade that the free trade agreements did not allow. And the courts found for those plaintiffs, and I don't know off the top of my head exactly who they were in that suit, but the courts found that indeed our labeling laws in the United States for meat products violated these free trade agreements that we have signed on to. So instead of uh, trying to rewrite the labeling law to conform to the free trade agreements that we've signed— and maintain some semblance of a country of origin labeling for the food that we eat in the United States. Congress has bailed. Congress has struck down or or rescinded the law for labeling meat. They have eliminated that law. And going forward, there will not be country of origin labels on meat products and i think that's a really slippery slope and once uh that is removed for you know meat products then are we going to lose the ability to know where our vegetables come from are we going to have the country of origin labeling removed from all of the clothing and all the textiles that are sold in this country I don't think it's very far-fetched to believe that the expansion of the free trade agreements that we sign on to um, will will drive that. Will More companies will sue the U.S. government for its laws that are intended to protect consumers, and either we'll have to stand up and fight those and either pay or risk paying large fines if we are uh, if we lose those lawsuits or we need to change our laws and we need to reduce the laws that were created to protect consumers. So these free trade agreements have a lot of impacts, Um, not only the impact of losing really good manufacturing jobs to foreign countries because those goods can be re-imported more cheaply under these free trade laws. But there are a lot of other uh, potential and real consequences of the free trade laws, the free trade agreements that the U.S. has entered into and is considering entering into with the TPP. Uh, and another story from Bernie Sanders. This is from com. This was a press release put out by the Sanders campaign. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders introduced a bold plan to rebuild the middle class, raise wages, and reduce the poverty rate during his presidential campaign at a time when income and wealth inequality are skyrocketing. Sanders pays for his economic agenda by making Wall Street, large corporations, and the wealthiest Americans pay their fair share in taxes. And this was Bernie Sanders' policy director, Warren Gunnels, uh, actually issuing this statement for the campaign. Unlike Citizens for Tax Justice, the Tax Policy Center chose to analyze Sanders' tax plan in a vacuum without taking into account the savings the American people would gain under his Medicare-for-all plan. That is misleading. The analysis from Citizens for Tax Justice found that 95% of American households will see their take-home pay go up, not down, under Sanders' Medicare-for-all plan, which is paid for by his progressive tax plan. Citizens for Tax Justice also found that middle-class families would see their take-home pay go up by more than $3,200 a year under Sanders' plan. Not only did the Tax Policy Center fail to estimate the savings the American people will gain under Medicare for All, they also failed to count the economic gains that would be achieved by Sanders' plan to rebuild the middle class. Sanders has a plan to create and maintain at least 13 million jobs rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. It is widely accepted among many economists that rebuilding roads, bridges, drinking water facilities, airports, and other infrastructure needs creates jobs for Americans in the short term while allowing commerce to flow more smoothly in the long term, a win-win for prosperity in the U.S. The Tax Policy Center did not look at that. Sanders has a plan to make public colleges and universities tuition-free that would save the typical middle-class family $9,400 a year. Creating a workforce that is more educated and less bogged down in student debt would benefit the economy immensely. The Tax Policy Center did not look at that. Sanders has a plan to extend and expand Social Security, boosting the income of senior citizens by an average of about $1,600 a year. The Tax Policy Center did not look at Bernie's plan to expand Social Security. Sanders has a plan to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour and to protect the pensions of more than 1.5 million workers. The Tax Policy Center did not look at that. Sanders' tax plan is a mechanism for achieving universal health care and education, creating jobs, and a secure retirement. Without estimating the benefits the American people would gain under these initiatives, The Tax Policy Center's report is inaccurate and one-sided. The American middle class has been disappearing for 40 years. This is a big problem that demands big solutions. The reality is that Sanders' plans will make our tax system more progressive and will make the investments that are key to our future prosperity. So when you see studies of Bernie Sanders plans, Bernie Sanders uh, plans for taxes, Bernie Sanders plans for um, programs that the tax money is intended to support. Um, Make sure that uh, there's some balance to what those studies and those reviews are looking at and make sure they're not all one-sided either, either, you know, heavily touting or showing only the benefits without uh, explaining what the tax implications are just as bad as what's much more common um, touting and screaming about the tax costs without measuring the potential benefits that those investments are going to make. And from fortune.com by Ben Geyer. The Hillary Clinton campaign did some pretty serious fundraising in February, though it still fell short of the totals put up by her Democratic rival, Bernie Sanders. Clinton, who won big on Super Tuesday, raised $30 million in February and has $31 million in cash on hand, according to Politico. That compares with the $42 million that Sanders raised. Sanders didn't announce his total cash on hand, but Politico notes that he had $15 million at the end of January. The fact that Sanders is able to keep out raising Clinton despite not winning many primaries perhaps shows what he lacks in numbers he makes up for in enthusiasm. It also suggests that he could be able to actually follow through on his promise to stay in the contest until the Democratic National Convention in July, even if he falls out of the running for the nomination. Sanders did manage to win his home state of Vermont along with Oklahoma on Super Tuesday plus caucuses in Minnesota and Colorado. So where to begin? I mean, clearly the main point of the story is Sanders is doing phenomenally well in fundraising, raising $42 million in February, um, well ahead of Hillary Clinton, who raised thirty-one million dollars? No, who raised thirty million dollars in February? So uh, tremendous fundraising by Sanders in February. Um, but as uh, you know, the corporate media, like Fortune Magazine, is um, not surprisingly uh, intent on doing. They certainly layer on enough. Uh, Negativity against Sanders campaign, you know, with lines like, um, the fact that Sanders is able to keep out raising Clinton, despite not winning many primaries shows that what he lacks in numbers, he makes up for enthusiasm. Um, you know, this is the way that the, the corporate media, you know, is playing things. It's, it's very heavily slanted. Um, and, Many stories that ostensibly point out Sanders' strengths also layer on a whole lot of um, what the authors believe are weaknesses. And I don't have any problem with balanced stories. I have problem with stories that are either heavily slanted against Sanders or... Add in unnecessary commentary to to what some might call balance the scales, but really, um, you know, you can have a positive story. You, you certainly can have a positive story for Clinton. You can have a positive story for Sanders. You can have a negative story for either as well. It just seems to me from what I read and what I hear that the negative stories for Sanders are uh, far more common not necessarily more common than negative stories for clinton clinton gets her more than her fair share of negative stories um but the imbalance in the corporate media when discussing sanders and discussing his opportunity and his chances is just it's really overwhelming and One story that really pointed this out today, there was a Democratic debate last night. I was not able to watch it. It was on uh, CNN, and I don't get a regular feed of CNN. But I did get to watch some clips of it and certainly got bombarded in stories today um, and on social media, particularly on Twitter, regarding a couple of points from that debate um, there was one point, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but Sanders was talking about or he was asked about how essentially asked about white privilege i don't I don't think that the question was phrased in quite that way, but Sanders talked about um, how people like him haven't experienced certain things that a portion of the black community experienced. But Sanders wasn't so nuanced in his response. This is where in the debate last night and in the coverage of that debate. So I think this, this is, this isn't necessarily so representative of the debate overall, but is extremely representative of the coverage of that debate and what the corporate media determines should the the story from the debate should be. Uh, but Sanders spoke poorly when he answered that question. He he phrased his answer in a way that could very easily be taken out of context. He said that uh white people don't know what it's like to live in the ghetto. Um and that was easy to take out of context. I understand why some people uh expressed dismay at that specific statement um i think had he phrased it slightly differently he could have eliminated a lot of that and this i think this goes to show his inexperience in debating on the national stage on the national scene where every word matters and had he been more practiced and more nuanced the way that clinton is um but hopefully not to the extent she is but had he been a little bit more nuanced in his response he could have probably avoided a lot of this so uh, i think that this is partly um a consequence of his specific phrasing used but certainly sanders knows as well as anybody because he's been fighting for poor people and middle class people for his whole career he absolutely knows there are a tremendous amount of white people um in this country that know what living in the ghetto, living in impoverished areas is like. It's certainly true that the African American community uh a larger a larger percentage of the African American community um lives in those disadvantaged areas where Businesses, where companies, where governments really have in many ways abandoned uh, providing decent services in those communities. And that that was the point Sanders was making, but his phrasing was not precise enough to make his point effectively and not get a tremendous amount of of backlash um, over that point. So that was one, one spin on the debate last night. And this is the unfortunate part because this is the most of the media that I've seen has come out um, either around that particular point or around this next point. Um, and the media wants to fight. So any, any what they refer to as feistiness or potentially disrespectful language, um, they're going to jump on. And they certainly jumped on this next quote, and they ran with it. And there's a lot. And and it's not only the corporate media that is taking up this kind of the charge on this, but this provides fodder for all of the supporters of the competition, all of the supporters of Hillary Clinton who want to attack Sanders. Um, this provides them with a lot of ammunition regardless of the fact, regardless of the truth. Um, it allows them to paint Sanders in a certain way. So uh, instead of Uh, talking about it without talking about it anymore here is a story from politico.com on a very small portion of that debate last night and this is by nolan mccaskill excuse bernie sanders The Vermont senator on Monday pushed back on claims that the tone he addressed Hillary Clinton with during Sunday's Democratic debate in Flint, Michigan, was condescending. During an intense exchange over the auto industry and Wall Street bailout, Sanders began to say that some of Clinton's friends destroyed this economy before she interrupted. Excuse me, I'm talking, Sanders said testily. And the vast majority of media reports on this interaction during the debate, use that type of language, testily, condescendingly, um, aggressively. They really pushed back on Sanders' tone. And I have the clip, and I'm going to play you the clip and then talk about it a little bit more. So here is a very brief clip from the debate last night in Michigan. This debate was held in Flint, Michigan. Um, This was a debate that was added to the list of debates um, to occur just before the Michigan primary tomorrow. So here's the clip.
0: The money that ended up saving the auto industry. I think that is a pretty big difference. Well, if you are talking about the Wall Street bailout, where some of your friends destroyed this economy, you, know. Through, excuse me, I'm talking. Let him sprung.
1: If you're going to talk, tell the whole story, well, Senator Let Sanders. me tell
0: my story, you tell yours. I will. Your story is for voting for every disastrous trade agreement and voting for corporate America. Did I vote against the Wall Street bailout when billionaires on Wall Street destroyed this economy? They went to Congress and they said, oh, please, we'll be good boys. Bail us out. You know what I said? I said, let the billionaires themselves bail out Wall Street. Shouldn't be the middle class of this country. Okay. Wait a minute. Can I finish? You'll have your turn. All right.
2: So that was a brief clip of a piece of the debate that's really gotten the probably overwhelming response from anything that came out in that debate, which is really unfortunate. Um, the other bits and pieces that I've seen so far from the debate, I think that the candidates did talk extensively on a number of important topics. And to have the uh, corporate media just really focus on this um brief exchange in which clearly Clinton uh, was speaking about the auto industry bailout and claiming that Bernie was opposed to it and Bernie getting the opportunity to respond. And as he began to respond, um, Clinton jumped in and interrupted him and he responded to that interruption and a great many people uh have characterized that in a way in which um they claim it was sexist they claim that, that that how bernie responded uh to clinton when she interrupted him was sexist i don't read it that way um i think bernie would have and has probably many times said very much the same thing to a male candidate that's interrupted him in the past. Um, But in any event, uh, I think this even has broader, bigger implications, and it shows uh, some effectiveness in Hillary's debating style. Um, The... The point that Hillary was making that Bernie Sanders voted against the auto industry bailout was mostly not true, um, but ultimately had some basis basis of truth. This this the point the hint that Hillary actually jumped back in after interrupting Bernie and Bernie saying, excuse me, you know, I'm talking, it's my turn. And Hillary's saying, well, if you're going to talk, then tell the whole story. Bernie was actually trying to tell the whole story. She interrupted him doing so, gaining maybe some debate points. But in the same way that Ronald Reagan, and I'm dating myself here, uh, gained debate points against Jimmy Carter in one of their famous debates and one of the most famous lines from Ronald Reagan— In that debate, Carter had made a point about Ronald Reagan's record, and Ronald Reagan said, Well, there you go again. And that was the story of the debate. That's what everybody heard after that debate. Ronald Reagan saying, Well, there you go again, you know, distorting my record. But the fact was that what Carter had said was accurate, and Reagan's comment was deflective, but not accurate as far as him challenging Carter's statement. And Clinton's uh statement to tell the whole story is exactly in those lines. It's it's a really clever debate strategy and debate tactic to imply that your opponent is being less than truthful, especially when your opponent is being entirely truthful. Bernie was it was Clinton had made her point. It was Bernie's opportunity to respond to that point. Clinton's point was that Bernie voted against the auto industry bailout. And Bernie was making the point that that auto industry bailout was rolled into the tarp or the bailout for the big banks. And Bernie absolutely voted against that bailout for the big banks. But what didn't come out in the debate, partly probably because Clinton deflected Sanders as he began to respond, and he, and he, what I feel, kind of shifted gears and, and spoke a little bit more broadly. But Sanders voted for the auto industry bailout, just like Clinton voted for the bailout when the bailout was a freestanding bill. Bernie had no significant opposition whatsoever and strongly supported the auto industry bailout. He felt that it was very important to support that industry because of the ripple effects that would happen if that industry had failed and the jobs had been lost in that industry. However, when the, I think it was in the neighborhood of $8 billion that was uh Planned to go for the auto industry bailout when that got rolled into the multi-billion-dollar bailout for the big banks, Bernie did not support that legislation. Like many of the pieces that Clinton and her team have focused on in Bernie's voting history, um, the bills that Congress puts together are very complex. They have, in in many cases. Have some strong positive legislation wrapped up with some uh less positive, if not outright you know negative or bad legislation. It's how congressmen get congressmen and women get bad legislation passed. they roll it into uh, a bill that is either a must pass bill like the annual budget or a bill that has strong support for the positive aspects of it. So almost any bill that gets voted on has good pieces and bad pieces. And it is easy when someone has a very, very long voting record like Bernie Sanders to selectively find those good things that Sanders voted against. And conversely, selectively find those bad things that Sanders voted for, without really fully expressing the the whole story, as Hillary Clinton put it in her uh second interruption of Bernie in that very very short clip that I played, and not only were there was a second interruption of Bernie in that short clip, there was actually a third interruption of Bernie in that short clip. Right near the end, as he was it was still his time under the debate rules to continue speaking and clinters Clinton started to you know speak up again, and he he shut her down again, and a lot of people are very upset with that part of the debate, and I think that In some ways, they want Hillary Clinton, many Hillary Clinton supporters, and I don't want to brand all Hillary Clinton supporters, uh, many Hillary Clinton supporters want Hillary to be treated equally to any other politician out there, and they are very concerned when she's not, and I am too. If someone acts towards Hillary Clinton in a way, in a negative way, Based on the fact that she is a woman, that is atrocious, and there's no room for that. And anybody who does that should be called out. On the flip side, in a debate, in a strong debate with strong, you know, opponents or strong uh, candidates debating, you should be expected to. Be pushed back on. You should be expected to debate and you should not interrupt your opponent on a regular basis. If your opponent says something outlandishly false or outlandishly wrong, I think you have an opportunity to interrupt and point out the fact that, you know, that isn't accurate. But I think. Sanders politely told Hillary that it was his turn to speak. And even though voices were raised, but voices were raised on both sides, it was not Bernie Sanders raising his voice to Hillary Clinton, who was, you know, speaking in a, a calm and steady manner. You heard at the beginning of that clip, Hillary Clinton was very vociferously pointing out her point of view about what Bernie's record was. And he very vociferously, you know, expressed himself as well. I, I, I don't think he would have done anything differently. Had he been facing a man, I think that he would have said precisely the same things that he said, uh, facing Hillary Clinton. I think that that is exactly the way it should be. um, So back to the story I started from Politico.com. Clinton aides portrayed the exchange as a slight on par with Rick Lazio's debate gaffe in Clinton's 2000 Senate race. And I'm not extremely familiar with that, but apparently um, in that Senate race with Rick Lazio during a debate, Rick Lazio, uh, the, story that I read about that um, expressed it as he invaded her space. So her, her aides portrayed this exchange from Sanders in the same light as that event from her Senate race in the past. But Sanders maintained that he didn't interrupt Clinton, who he noted spoke well past the allotted time of 75 seconds to answer questions and 30 seconds for follow-ups. Quote, did you check how much time Hillary Clinton spoke during the debate? Did you check how often Hillary Clinton interrupted me? Sanders said to reporters. When I was speaking, she interrupted me. I did not interrupt her, despite the fact that she spoke longer, he continued. You know, the red lights went on and she kept talking. I didn't interrupt her. But I think in the middle of a debate, if somebody is trying to make a point and somebody else interrupts you, it's rude. And I think that's a much more factual representation of what occurred. I think that the spin on this really, really minor event in the debate last night is intense. And I think that it's a disservice to the voters because it completely obscures the facts It completely buries the truth. And it's it's unfortunately, you know, what our corporate media is out there pushing. They want to sell I was gonna say newspapers, but not many of them do that anymore. They want to sell stories, they want to get eyeball, they want to sell their viewers to their advertisers, they want to sell ads, they want large viewership, a conflict is going to stir people up it's going to make supporters on one side angry and supporters on the other side angry and then you suddenly get more interaction with your story online you get more eyeballs you get more money from advertisers so uh unfortunately the truth loses and unfortunately when the truth loses The public loses. And moving on, the next story is from RadioOrNot.com. And it is called, Why a Feminist Who, quote, Connected with Hillary Is Voting for Bernie Sanders. Deborah Newell of the blog Lit Brit is a regular guest on the Nicole Sandler radio show, As Am I. Although we've never been on together, But we do keep in touch in various ways. One way is through a listserv, on which Deborah wrote the following on why she, a diehard feminist, is voting for Bernie Sanders. It took some serious thought, introspection, and scrutiny of Hillary Clinton's policies before Deborah made that decision. Her personal story and experiences that led her to support Bernie Sanders touched me so deeply that I felt compelled to share. Deborah has given me permission to do just that. Here is the email, verbatim. In the days and years before January 22, 2016, when I became a U.S. citizen, the question of whom to vote for was always a hypothetical one for me. Oh, that doesn't mean that I didn't think about it, write about it, and discuss endlessly at our dinner table all the good, bad, and ugly features of every candidate vying for the votes of my husband and two of my three sons, U.S. citizens by birth. The Hus is our main breadwinner, without a doubt, and we live where his business lives, as opposed to where I would prefer to live, making him the de facto head of the family. But as the saying goes, certainly as it goes in the so-called traditionally patriarchal countries I've lived in, the man may be the head, but the woman is the neck that turns the head. So it would be dishonest of me to say that my interest in presidential politics was just academic. It would be disingenuous of me to say that in researching, analyzing, and discussing the candidates' records and policy proposals, their personal histories, and present-day characters, and their values—in so far as it ever is possible to assess those—with a hundred percent accuracy, when the person one is evaluating, only exists in the electronic boxes in one's home, that I was merely indulging a hobby, a rather masochistic hobby. I was amassing the data, evaluating it, and applying it to the progressive values we've taught our kids, the values that my family and I strive to uphold in all areas of life, not just politics. I was doing my job as, quote, the neck. In 2008, I was genuinely torn. To my mind, there was not that much difference between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. All things being equal, I told myself, my feminist self, I would have to support the woman candidate because she would bring to the nation's highest office a range of experiential qualities that a man never could. In the same way that prior to giving birth to my first child, I always thought I knew what agonizing physical pain was. I had, after all, broken long bones while riding horses, and I'd suffered through a few tropical viruses, but in reality could not possibly know what it was really like until I'd gone through it myself. Likewise, then, a man, even a man who was the most empathetic creature on the planet, could nonetheless never truly understand what it was like to go through life as a woman in our culture. That mattered a great deal to me. It still does. I connected with Hillary Clinton on a number of levels, just as the data tells us that women in my demographic tend to. We've experienced sexism and harassment. We've been underestimated and underpaid. We've seen our perceived worth reduced to our fuckability and outward appearance. Even as we are simultaneously told to cover up those attributes, lest we cause a helpless male superior at work or else some rando dude in the parking lot, to accidentally rape us. Ah yes, rape, that vile and violent power display thing. Only a woman could truly know, at the experiential level, what all that shit feels like, how it talks to us deep inside our brains, telling us we are not as good, not as smart, not pretty enough, not thin enough, too thin, too pretty, too loud, too quiet, And now, for me anyway, too old. Even as we managed to do well in the face of all that because, if we're lucky, we had a role model or two in our family or circle of friends who insisted that we could, or else we found in the literature or art or cinema some small gem of wisdom and affirmation that made us realize we could, indeed, look at what we've been through. We already have. At the same time, though, and despite the powerful impetus to link arms with Hillary Clinton and support her in her quest to become the country's first woman president, I could not ignore her Iraq vote. The two candidates were so similar in so many ways, but that one difference meant a lot to me. I believed 2008 Barack Obama when he said he would end the wars and bring everyone home. More than that, his no vote told me he did not go along with the herd, he did not cave to pressure from war hawks, and this, in turn, indicated that even as a young senator, he had his own mind and he had the right ethics, the kind of ethics that had him standing up to the murderous George W. Bush and his colleagues. Our dinner conversations began to center around Barack Obama. We read his book, Dreams from My Father. Well, I did. I can't say for sure the boys did. I still longed for a really left-leaning candidate, one who broke free from the neoliberals in the Democratic Party, the way that terrific outspoken democratic socialist Bernie Sanders did in the Senate. Quote, "If Bernie ever runs for president," I declared, "I'm becoming a citizen so I can go with you guys to the poll and vote for him myself." Fast forward to last year, Bernie announced his run and I filed for citizenship, something I know well I should have done years ago. I've been eligible since 1979, but didn't because a big part of my heart still lived in England, where other socialists like me were living, and living in the sunlight unashamed and unassailed. And I felt it would be unethical to become an American when that English part of me still had blood flowing through it. Bernie, a democratic socialist, possibly becoming president? Well then. And here we are, we're looking at the increasingly inevitability that despite a heroic run by Senator Sanders, Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee. But I can't vote for her, even though I am now a citizen, as well as a feminist. It's the war slash foreign policy thing again. The foreign policy history that Secretary Clinton forged between 2008 and now. It's about Libya, and for me, Honduras. The latter received such scant coverage in this country, it broke and continues to break my heart. But it matters a great deal. You see, I lived in Honduras as a young teen, lived through the 1974 coup, and another part of my heart is with the people of that country too. Last week, an activist for the indigenous people and campesinos and women of Honduras, a brave and beloved woman named Berta Caceres, was shot dead in her home. What does this have to do with Hillary Clinton? In 2009, as Secretary of State, Clinton shepherded in the new hard-right School of the Americas trained military junta who's, who ousted a democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya. Ousted is not quite the right word, after a contentious back and forth between Zelaya and the far, more right-wing factions of the government, soldiers broke into the president's house, beat him up, held him at gunpoint, and dragged him onto a plane, still in his pajamas, and flew him out of the country. A bit of background. Mel Zelaya was himself a member of oligarchic society in Honduras. As you are probably aware, Honduras is practically a case study in what goes wrong when income inequality gets too out of hand. You have a tiny few owning everything, and you have multinational corporations linking arms with them to seize every resource there is, and you have a vast many who have virtually nothing. Nothing often means no electricity, no running water, no shelter, no food. You have 15-year-olds with AKs strapped to them stopping you in the street at gunpoint to ask for your ID. And when you hand them your passport, they look at it upside down because they don't know how to read. True story. You have indigenous people being abused at every turn, having their waterways seized for dam projects, their land and mountains destroyed by mining interests, their fields taken over by corporate fruit industries. You have a population kept in line by all the traditional fascistic fascistic, means Sexism, hardline religion, and militarized police forces who beat and kill, who make people disappear. But Zelaya, despite his upbringing, had the heart of a leftist. Once elected, he set about making birth control available to poor women Even Plan B, he stood up and apologized for the country's history of persecuting LGBT individuals and told them they were okay, they would be safe now. He constantly advocated for the poor, for the indigenous communities, for the campesinos. He worked alongside Berta Caceres and other activists like her. He was in the process of pushing for a significant raise in the country's minimum wage when he was, quote, ousted. When the coup happened in 2009, President Obama first condemned it, as did the UN, as did the OAS. Many Latin American leaders were calling for the U.S. to do something, to demand that Zelaya be allowed to return to his country, where tens of thousands of people were marching in the street, peacefully protesting and calling for their president's safe return, and getting beaten and shot for their trouble. In a few days, the press moved on, Suddenly, our U.S. president was saying nothing. Hillary Clinton's emails, released last summer, tell us why. She was very actively involved in supporting the installation of the new right-wing government. This has been covered by Democracy Now!, Telesur, and other, quote, alternative media. A piece in The Nation written by noted Latin American scholar Greg Grandin is a good one to start with. Why is this important to me, and why should it be important to every feminist who is voting in the presidential election? Because of what happened in the aftermath of Zelaya's violent removal from office in 2009, in the years between then and 2016. Draconian abortion laws were put into place, birth control became unaffordable once again, and Plan B was banned. LGBT individuals were beaten and killed after they had just begun to feel as though this was their country too. They were free. Now it was, oh, sorry, you're actually not safe. You will be beaten if you're lucky, murdered, and mutilated if you're not. Multinationals got their footholds strengthened as militarized police forces beat and killed protesters. And, well-documented at this point, the ensuing chaos and mind-bending levels of violence that beset the largest cities, particularly San Pedro Sula, led families who feared for their children's lives—many families had already lost loved ones due to drug gang violence—to send them on a long and frightening journey to the U.S. border, where they hoped their kids would somehow find asylum and safety— meaning these children would have to travel through Honduras, through the length of either El Salvador or Guatemala, and the entirety of Mexico. Please imagine how desperate you would have to be, how dire your circumstances would have to be, for you to kiss your small kids goodbye, and put them on a rickety bus, and hope against hope, they would make it to safety. Secretary Clinton said they should be sent back, these kids. Said so this would, quote, send a message. I actually watched the debate during which she said this and shouted at my television. Send a message to whom? I know I've rambled on, to put it mildly, but I was finally moved to speak and I had a lot to say. I have been reading the discussions everywhere. About people's support for Secretary Clinton based on feminist principles, and always a discussion turns to the same questions. Why are you denying my experience as a woman? Why can't you see how important it is to me as a woman to have a woman be able to rise above all the things we have faced and be elected to the country's highest office? Why aren't you listening to me? Meanwhile, I, a feminist, a mother, a target of sexual harassment and sexism, am asking, why aren't you listening to me? The world does not begin and end at the U.S. borders. Backchanneling deals to install right-wing military hunters that impose and enforce draconian reproductive laws is not feminist. Backchanneling deals to install right-wing military hunters that silence by bullet more than a few women activists is not feminist. When LGBT people are beaten and killed when women who are raped, can't get abortions, when women who live in a highly patriarchal culture cannot even access ways to plan their families, which in turn seals their fate as permanent members of the underclass so favored among multinationals who need cheap, motivated labor. These results are not feminist goals. Thanks for listening. Now you know why when I say
1: I, quote, feel the burn, I really mean it. I think that speaks to so many important
2: and mostly unspoken and unshared uh, factors. And it's just something that you don't and won't hear from the corporate media. It's something that for me is so strong and so powerful. I am... Really happy that I came across this piece. I'm happy that uh, Deborah Newell um, felt what she felt and felt the need to share it
1: and the The story the the what went
2: on in Honduras has gone on all over the world and our government has supported the most brutal dictators and oligarchs around the world when it served our corporate needs or served other elements of uh of our foreign policy when it destabilized regions that otherwise might have with stability um, found some bits of power. It really nails uh, more strongly than anything I've read in quite a long time exactly what is wrong with our leadership and wrong with our foreign policy and uh, wrong with how and where our country and our government uh, takes a stand. Um, The murder of environmentalists in Central and South America is alarming over the past couple decades. Um, You know, this is, is one example of many and... The chaos and and destruction of human life seen in Honduras has been seen all over the world. It's been seen in Haiti with Aristide. It's been seen in Costa Rica. It's been seen in Venezuela with a coup, near coup, that we supported there. It's uh, the history of Iran It's it's how the people Of Iran and the Leaders of Iran In the student revolution In The 70s turned turned against us Because of our support of the Shah It is our History of It's our foreign policy It's the, the types of policies that Hillary supports And the types that Bernie generally doesn't And I don't think Bernie's perfect In this sense, but I think that Bernie is vastly, vastly superior on foreign policy than the foreign policy that we have now and have had for many years. Bernie understands the shortcomings and the the issues and the problems there, and uh, that's why we need to elect Bernie. So that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can connect with me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. Or you can send me an email at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can check out some links to stories about Bernie and to some other resources on Bernie at my website, in addition to uh, past episodes of this podcast. And that is at Bernie-2016.com. And as we head out this episode, we are going to listen to We're Going to Change Everything by Diane Stavros can find that on YouTube by searching for Diane Stavros. With some luck, we are going to change everything. Vote for Bernie. Thanks for listening.
1: When we stand together Nothing that can stop us, not tomorrow, not tonight. When we stand united fighting
0: for our kids and our parents, by the millions, making this political revolution, there is nothing, nothing we cannot accomplish.
1: The game is rigged, it don't seem fair, no matter how. We work, it all goes to the billionaires We have got to
0: create an economy in America, and we can Which works for working families, not just billionaires
1: We're gonna change everything We're gonna make the world a better place ba da President,
0: none, no matter how good he or she may be, can bring about the changes that we need, desperately need in this country, unless there is a political revolution. We're gonna
1: change everything. We're gonna make the world a better place. Ba-da-ba, ba-da-ba. me
0: to make a lot more sense to invest in education and jobs for our kids rather than in jail and incarceration
1: factory shutting down children going hungry the middle class is vanishing from our country this
0: campaign is sending a message to the billionaire class. Yes, we have the guts to take you on.
1: We're going to change everything. We're going to make the world a better place. Ba-da-ba, ba-da-ba. We
0: need to stand together to make that political revolution. Where we create an America and a government that works for all of us. We can do it. We're going to change everything.
1: we going to make the world a better place. But I ba but da ba People working 40 hours. It's time to turn the page. They should be earning a living wage The
0: federal minimum wage of seven and a quarter an hour Is a starvation wage It has got to be raised to a
1: living wage We're gonna change everything We're gonna make the world a better place Frederick Douglass, the great
0: abolitionist told us That freedom does not come without struggle. We can do it when we stand up and say enough is enough. The billionaires are not going to have it all. It's our country. Let's create that nation. Thank you all very much.